exit uh, the first part one of the video, and we can go ahead and watch. It's only like five minutes, so it's fun, and I watched it over and over again. So, book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which son Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now Jacob's 11th son Joseph had been elevated to second command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's Exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. Now this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as a vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here, pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis, and so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh will resist, and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. But then God also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean that God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely and in sequence. In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, Moses offers a chance for Pharaoh to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart grew hard. He's doing this of his own will. And so eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he has lost his mind. And it's at that point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people, which is what happens next. With the final plague, it's the night of Passover. And God turns the tables on Pharaoh. Just as he killed the sons of the Israelites, so God will kill the firstborn in Egypt with a final plague. But unlike Pharaoh, God provides a means of escape through the blood of the lamb. And here the story stops and introduces us in detail to the annual Israelite ritual of Passover. On the night before Israel left Egypt, they sacrificed a young spotless lamb and painted its blood on the doorframe of their house. And when the divine plague came over Egypt, the houses covered with the blood of the lamb were passed over and the sun spared. And so every year since, the Israelites have reenacted that night to remember and to celebrate God's justice and his mercy. But Pharaoh, because of his pride and rebellion, he loses his own son. And he's compelled to finally let the Israelites go free. And so the Israelite slaves make their exodus from Egypt. But no sooner do they leave that Pharaoh changes his mind and he gathers his army and chases after the Israelites for a final showdown. As the Israelites pass through the waters of the sea safely, Pharaoh charges towards his own destruction. The Exodus story concludes with the first song of praise in the Bible. It's called the Song of the Sea. And the final line declares that the Lord reigns as king. And then the song retells in poetry what the story of God's kingdom is all about. It's about how God is on a mission to confront evil in his world and to redeem those who are enslaved to evil. God is going to bring his people into the promised land where his divine presence will live among them. This story is what it looks like when God becomes king over his people. So after the Israelites sing their song, the story takes a sharp turn. The Israelites are trekking through the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, and they're hungry, they're thirsty, and they start criticizing Moses and God for even rescuing them. They say they long for the good old days in Egypt. I mean, it's crazy. So God graciously provides food and water for Israel in the wilderness, but these stories, they cast a dark shadow. And we begin to wonder, could it be that Israel's heart is just as hard as Pharaoh's? We shall see. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Exodus. All right. Good, isn't it? Even after watching it many, many times, I still find it fascinating. The, um, one thing I noticed is that if you've studied the book and you find the confusing parts, then after studying it, you go back and watch it, and you're like, oh, wow, yeah, that makes sense. That's partly why I wanted to show you this. Even though what we're talking about tonight isn't even it's not even mentioned, which is kind of frustrating because I was really hoping to grab some good material and just be able to present that, but there was nothing there. Um, so chapter 18 is a little bit, uh, it was just missed, and it's just not part of what the, in the video. Okay, so let's see. Are we back on? Yeah, here we go. Going on. Pass yeah, on. Themes. This is what you're going to take away from tonight. Two things. That's it. Um, the power of testimony and advice on leadership. So there are two things that this chapter is going to teach us. There's lots more that it could teach us, and we'll you know, hit on some of those things as we read through and talk about it. But the two main things that you're going to take away. The power of testimony. That's when testimony about what God has done in your life. And the second is 
some practical, really practical advice about how to be a good leader. So um, we'll notice that, uh, yeah, okay, let's take a look. Here's the timeline. So the Bible Project video did a good job of, I think, kind of explaining where we are in the narrative arc of uh, Exodus. Um, getting a little bit finer point here, we leave Egypt, um, cross the Red Sea into the desert of Shur. Um, uh, we're at Elam, where the oasis is. Uh, that was what happened a couple chapters before, where there's 70 um, palm trees and seven springs, so like abundance of provision there. Um, then in the desert of sin, sin has nothing to do with the word sin. Um, so it's on the 15th day of the second month after they leave. Okay? Um, and then they leave the desert of sin and start going to places the Lord commands. That's the way the text reads. And then they um, wind up in Rephidim. And you'll see this on the map. So um, they go and we're kind of wandering down. You can see the line there. Then there's Rephidim with a, the arrow underneath it. Um, that's where they defeat the Amalekites. And then um, move down a little bit south there, and they're um, at Mount Sinai. And so according to my timeline here, which I just took from the text, um, uh, and it says that at Mount Sinai, it's the first day of the third month. So a lot of stuff has happened, but it's only three months since they have crossed the Red Sea, you know, um, the, they're only three months sort of as people wandering around, like following a pillar of fire and, you know, so that's, that's like, this is all new stuff. This is really new. Three months, it's just the summer, right? I mean, how short is the summer? So, um, and then um, last thing on the timeline, um, they leave Mount Sinai the 12th day of the second month in the second year. And that's in Numbers 10. We're at Exodus 18. And the next thing that they do in terms of like moving around is, you know, like a book and a half later in terms of the, so there's a lot of text just in the Bible that happens right here at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so that's what the, the second part of the, yeah, the um, that's what is going to happen in the subsequent uh, messages. We're going to hear about that stuff. Okay. Through the timeline. We are going to read the text. I'm going to read it in uh, uh, the whole thing straight through, and then we're going to go through section by section. And sorry, I'm an uh, NIV person, and so you're going to hear it in NIV, so you're going to have to use your translation person. Um, I, yeah, uh, sorry. Okay, uh, it's not that far off. Anyway. Okay, now Jethro, the priest of Midian, and father in law of Moses, heard everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, and his, his father in law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershon, for Moses said, I had become a foreigner of a foreign land, and the other was named Eliezer, for he said, My father is God, was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' son and wife, sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he camped, where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all the hardships they had met along the way, and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of, hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord, who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders to Israel, of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. They stood around him from morning to evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you're doing for the people? Why, are you, why do you sit? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning to evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. And these people who come to you will only, bury, only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I'll give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate his son's name and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this in God's commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases that brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. There it is. Um, I guess I put this slide here on purpose because what I want to show is that Midian is right there, close to where the Israelites are So for Moses to actually, or Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, we read about the travel. It was actually like, you know, like kind of in my neighborhood kind of thing. So I was surprised to see that when I started looking at this map. I'm like, oh, well, that kind of makes sense. So like, where, you know, where did he come from? Like, oh, he's just, yeah, like, you're my neighbor. Okay. So who is this guy? Who is Jethro? Um, 
So in verses 1 through 8, um, we kind of get this, we're introduced to Jethro. He's actually introduced in um, Exodus 2.18 under a different name, Raul, um, as Zipporah's father, and therefore Moses' father-in-law. Now, there is some debate about this, and um, whether the word could mean that he was like Moses' brother-in-law. So it's, I don't think it's really important to the, to the story. You know, somebody, uh, I think Moses' uh, father-in-law, I think it makes it pretty clear, um, but you know, that they just mentioned it there. Okay, but Jethro is a priest of Midian. Um, and I found a really fascinating uh, little article about uh, this I'm going to read to you, um, where it compares chapter 17, and uh, Moses is dealing with the Amalekites. Amalekites if I'm going back to the map, the Amalekites were just right up there, sort of on the other side of the, the peninsula. And, um, and Jethro from Midian, both descendants from Abraham, um, through, uh, I don't remember who, but you can pick it up. Um, so got Midians over here and the Amalekites here, and how they treat the uh, people of Israel as they're fleeing. Um, so I'm going to show you this, uh, that read you this article from a guy named Will Barnard, who was a professor of Bible and Greek at the Master's College, and I'll just put up the quote here. This is what I'm going to read you, because he does a better job than I Just as uh, Melchizedek, priest of Salem, sorry, I'm, I, missed, I messed up. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that's right, okay. Just as Melchizedek, priest of Salem, met Abraham uh, with gifts as he returned from the battle with Aramphel, that's in Genesis. Uh, so Jethro, the priest of Midian, came out with Moses' family as he returned from the battle with the Amalekites. Well, uh, in Genesis 52, the servant of uh, Abraham was named Eliezer, the son of Moses, uh, son of the son of Moses is Eliezer in Exodus 18.4. Just as Melchizedek praised God for his rescue of Abraham from his enemies, Jethro also praised God for Israel's rescue from their enemies. Uh, just as Melchizedek brought out bread and wine as priests of God, so Jethro brought out an offering and sacrifice as a priest of God and ate bread with Moses. Jethro appears as another Melchizedek, and thus as a second paradigm of the righteous Gentile. It's important that Jethro have such credentials because he plays a major role in Exodus 18, instructing Moses on how to carry out God's laws. Thus, just as Abraham was met by priests in Genesis 14 before God made a covenant with him in Genesis 15, so Moses is met by Jethro the priest in Exodus 18 before God makes a covenant with him at Sinai in Exodus 19. Um, I, I thought this little comparison here between um, what's going on with the Amalekites and the comparison between uh, Melchizedek and Jethro was really insightful. Um, and I just that, that sort of this brings up a little bit of this side, um, the parallels that we see in the Bible, um, where you have like these, uh, the Bible probably calls them hyperlinks, like back, you know, you know, from one story to the other, they provide like this richness of, uh, of wisdom to the text that layers, it just adds layer upon layer. So it's why like studying the Bible can be really fascinating because you can read something and think, oh, you know, okay, that's just a good story about, you know, Death Row and come to meet his, his son-in-law. But like you see, okay, wow, there's all these other things that are supposed to point us back and let us remind us that, oh, this happens over here and this is how God works over in this case. So we can gain layers and layers of wisdom as we see these parallels and develop them. So just kind of a side point from there. Okay, uh, so. Second point here. Okay, so if you notice when we're reading through, um, there's a long, there's like a paragraph talking about Moses' uh, son's names. And watch, why would I ask myself, why are these recalled? And I, I came up with this comparison that, um, that Moses' old life is coming back and meeting with him. Um, one thing, I don't want to spend a lot of time, there's a, there's a it says, uh, after, in verse 2, it says, after Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah. When was, he, when was she sent away? Why was she sent away? The word sent away can mean divorce. Like, did he divorce her and send her away? Did he send her away before they, the uh, plagues in Egypt to like, keep them safe? Um, did he send them away when they were camped and just like, hey, we're close by. Go over and say hi to your dad because they're close. I'm not, not really sure. Um, but okay, that's, that's what's happening in the text. So, like, Moses sends his wife and two sons away and they come back. And so it's, it's setting up this contrast of, and in, in the text we read about their names and what they mean. And so that got me reflecting on, oh, okay, well, there's a lot that has changed in Moses' life. And, well, how long? Like, three months, right? Um, you know, we don't know exactly how long the plagues were, but, you know, it could be that long. Um, Moses' life is very different, right? Here's, here's some comparisons. He was a father, right? He was a son-in-law. He was a husband. He was a shepherd. Those were his vocations, right? You know, he was raised in the palace and stuff, but he fled. He was 40 years in Midian, tending sheep. Um, and now, you know, just three months later, he is the leader. He's a judge. He's a miracle worker. And he's a warrior. He like, just conquered the Amalekites by holding a staff, right? Um, that, he's a very different person. Um, so what kind of life-changing events um, are, have you experienced in the past? Um, there's a lot of things that, you know, you can say, this is, my, this is who I was and this is who I am now. Um, as I'm reflecting on, on it, uh, I used to work at summer camp, and summer camp was one of those places where people would go, go one person and come back as something very different. Um, just a very powerful, you're, you're away from your family, you're with this group, and you're in a very intense environment. And so like, we would see that all the time. It was like, you know, the power of camp was a slogan for, I think, the American Camping Association. But it's true, like, the life-changing events. Um, another one, college, right? Go off to college, and you hear about this all the time. Uh, you know, somebody, uh, fuckers come back at Christmas time, and they're like, 
different haircuts, listening to different music, you know, hanging out with totally different interests, right? College is a real life-changing type of event. Um, you see the same type of thing with reunions, right? How often do you uh, hear about you know people at those who are you know my 30th high school reunion and like oh, wow, it's totally different, you know? Um, that's where you see that contrast between who they were in high school and who they turned out to be. Um, another one, uh, a life-changing event that we see often, we just heard some great testimonies was when we take a, a mission trip. Um, so we just heard about people in. Did you hear about DR? No. Okay, I've talked to Justin, my future son-in-law, and uh, he was talking about the DR. But yeah, we just heard people from Africa, um, so we'll soon hear some testimonies about the, the that. So this is a good segue because what are we dealing with next? Our testimony, right? This is so we uh, in Exodus, uh, starting in verse eight, we start to see this explanation that Moses gives to his father-in-law uh, about what happened. So you know the whole story starts out that. He heard about it. Um, whether he heard about it because Moses sent his wife to go tell him about it. Um, either way, we we're told that he shows up. Moses greets him. It says here, okay, so um, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. This is verse 7. They greeted each other and went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardship they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to, just continue. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hands of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then, uh, okay. So we, we see Moses give testimony of what God has done in his life. Recent testimony. Last couple months. This is what, what's been going on. And Moses' response, or sorry, Jethro's response is, now I know. And so we see that in a couple other uh, spots. Where are we go. Yeah, okay. Let's match my slide here. Okay. Um, so there's two spots in the Old Testament that I want to highlight. Um, one is I don't, it looks like I cut off. I have the verse, <laughs> verse 24 of what book? Um, so I'm guessing that's, uh, let's see, so this is Elijah, so that would be for second Samuel. Second Samuel. Okay, so second Samuel somewhere, verse 24. Um, and Elijah uh, raises a widow's son, and the widow's testimony is, I know, now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. Um, similarly, uh, so that's Elijah, and then Elisha, prophet follows Elijah, heals Naaman of leprosy. So uh, this is, uh, if you remember the story, um, Naaman goes, Naaman's a, actually both of these people, both uh, the widow, um, and Naaman are both non-Israelites. So these are both testimonies of somebody on the inside giving testimony about what God has done, and then the person on the outside, these Gentiles, um, hearing and responding to uh, give praise to the Lord. Okay, so what does um, Naaman say? He returned, uh, again, in some unknown verse, <laughs> verse 15, then he returned uh, to the man of God with all his uh, company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. So please accept a gift from Israel right now. Um, it's, a, it's a power of testimony. Um, that's when you, when God is in your life and he's working, then you will experience some amazing things. Um, and God can, God, can cha- God can use that um, to change people's lives. Uh, let's, see, let's go on to the next slide. So Moses' testimony, God, uh, God is, uh, testimony of God's work caused Jethro, Jethro to believe. Um, so the question is here, what is your testimony about God? Um, when uh, my wife and I went, we were training to go and overseas and do some missions work, one of the things that they had us do was like prepare what your testimony, what God has done in your life, and you know, make it short, um, sort of the elevator pitch. I don't like to use the word elevator pitch because it sounds salesy and um, but it, in the process, uh, we reflected on it, uh, on what God has done, and then having to write it out and rooted. I don't know how many of you did rooted, but we all, you know, as part of rooted, um, went through that same process where you prepare uh, a testimony by kind of looking back uh, to say, okay, I'm going to write this down, this is what God has done in my life, and then share it. Um, so what is your testimony about God? What's the one thing that you uh, lead with when somebody asks you about your relationship? Um, there's a second question, please, on that. Well, okay, who are you sharing your testimony with, right? Um, it's great to have it written down, and I'm guilty of this, but who have you really shared that with? Um, and then the last point on this is, like, okay, is your testimony honoring to God? Because there's tons of testimonies out there about all kinds of stuff. Um, but does it honor God? So how is God work in your life? Um, and if you don't know how he has, then, hey, we're meeting on the 31st. And we're going to talk about how we're going to try to impact people's lives right here in the community. And that's a great opportunity for you to have the start of some change in your testimony. Um, so I'll, I'll just share with you here's my, my quick two-minute testimony. Um, I have uh, my wife and I. We're high school. Got started dating uh, in high school. I was not a good high schooler. Uh, 
and as soon as we graduated, I uh, found out Lois was pregnant when we were both at uh, college, and that point in my life changed everything. Uh, the, we ended up getting married a year and a half later. Our son Chris is now 31, lives in Seattle. Um, and the reason I point to that as a turning point in my life is because, one, I had to trust God to do things that I couldn't do. I was 19 years old, and I had a child, um, and I was in school. But God surrounded me with a loving community at school, which is just amazing, the amount of people um, at, our, at our school that was just like, okay, yeah, you're part of our married student community. Uh, of course you have kids, so, you know, it's normal at 19, right? Um, and our, the generosity that we experienced from my parents and my wife's parents, my wife's parents paid for us to live, and my parents paid for me to go to school. So I, we could raise a family, you know, and live without having to worry about, like, hey, I've, now I've got to go work a job and try to make money just to do this. So God's provision in that enabled me to finish school, raise my family, and, you know, continue on, which would have been and has been for many, many people a huge stumbling block, right? Like, it could easily have caused, you know, Lois to have all kinds of problems, for myself to have all kinds of problems. So, you know, God's, my, God's testimony in my life through that one particular event, a real turning point in my life, um, shows that he is generous and he's faithful. So that's, you know, that's how I reflect God's, uh, God's change in my life for testimony. Okay, so I, I told you that we have uh, two things that we're doing. Uh, we are talking about testimony, the power of testimony, done. Check that off. Now we're talking about um, the second half of the story, which is this idea of leadership. So first, we're going to get into this um, prelude about Moses being a judge. Um, and so we pick up the story, 18, verse 13, chapter 18, verse 13 through 16. Now, uh, okay. The next day, Moses took his seat uh, to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning to evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what you're doing is not, doing for the, what, hold on a second. Uh, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning to evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. So this is what Moses is doing. You know, for the past, you know, three months, he's been, okay, we're wandering around the desert, and you've got your problems, you're coming to me. Um, it's exhausting. It's got to be exhausting. Again, we talked about sort of the amount of change that Moses has gone through um, in the past couple of months, and now to see what his day-to-day life is, where people are bringing their problems. You know, I'm not sure if you're the kind of person where people bring their problems to you and share. Both my wife and my daughter uh, are the kind of people that, and so they, they carry that burden. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot. So we talk about stress a lot in our culture right now, and I think Moses was actually stressed, right? I mean, he was um, definitely, that, that's fair. Okay. Um, so this is Moses' day-to-day life. Getting up, and Jethro is observing this, right? He shows up, here's your wife and kids, hey, oh, this, this is what you do all day, huh? And I love, I love what he says um, in verse 17, what you're doing is not good. And that's not good. I think, you know, it's like that, one of those hyperlinks back to the Garden of Eden stuff, where you see everything is good, good, good. God, God made it good. And say, oh, this is not good. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way God has ordained it. Um, and so uh, Jethro exhorts Moses. Um, and so the gift of exhortation is a gift. It's done well. Um, my brother Jeremy has the gift of exhortation. <laughs> but, you, but you do. And um, it is, I don't, I don't want to take it from people. Um, you, know, just, you live your life and all of mine. But um, it's a gift when it's done well. Because Moses needed to hear this, right? And so people need to be exhorted and need to hear when things are wrong, even though it kind of stinks to have to be the person to tell them that sometimes. Okay, so the um, last point here is Moses is known as having God's wisdom. Isn't that, isn't that a great legacy to have? Isn't that what you want to hear people say? Oh, yeah, that person, you know, he's got God's wisdom, right? That's why, that's why people are coming to him. So I'm going to say it again. My, that's why people go to my wife, because she's smart. She's got God's wisdom. Yeah, yeah. All right. Here we are. Okay, now we're moving on. So we've got this, we've got the frame, or we've got the situation, right? We've got to kind of frame out. This is what Moses is doing today. And we say, it's not good. Okay, and from what we talked about before, bringing in the gravity, um, we know that or when we looked at that comparison between um, Jethro and Melchizedek, it starts like, okay, well, maybe this guy's important. Maybe we should be you know, paying attention to um, what Jethro is, is saying. And it seems very clear that, you know, this is good wisdom. Okay, so picking up in verse 17, we read, Moses' father-in-law replied, which we're doing is not good. You and these people who come from you will only wear, who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work's too heavy for you, you cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I'll give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions, and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. Maybe we're just stop there for now. Okay. Um, so we already talked about how you know, that echo back to the Garden of Eden, how this is good, what's good, and what's not good. You know, God's got some purpose and structure for how things should be, and this just doesn't seem like it should be. Um, so the work is too heavy. Um, and this 
you know, when you read this, immediately I, I think of the passage in Acts, um, where this new church is happening, right? Sort of just like a new people coming out of Egypt. Um, and the, um, the church in Acts is neglecting uh, the widows. Um, and we're going to go in and read that. Um, okay, so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts 6, or you can just see what I have up here. Acts 6, chapters 1 through 7. So, in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit of wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give them give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmaeus, Nicholas, I'm just going to make these words up, and Antioch, from Antioch, a convert of Judaism, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests came obedient to the faith. So you, you see the, the parallels there? We're in this situation, a new thing is happening, and kind of chaos and disorder is, is taking over. Um, it's causing bad things to happen. It's causing stress in the leadership, and it's causing pain in, in the people. Um, and so the disciples need, they, they, they heard the story before probably, so yeah, okay, well, let's, let's spread this out. We're not going to be the ones to go ahead and, and wait on tables, as they say. Uh, so they make deacons. I think you were just talking about that in Sunday. Um, so the work is too heavy, right? It's just got to be shared. Um, we gotta, the second takeaway that I get from this is that we've got to focus on the important task, the task only you can do. Like, there's lots of leadership books I started looking at. I was like, I'm going to find some you know, famous leader person who said this. Well, it's, it's just Pepperidge Come, right? And, you know, it's a thousand years old here. Um, but these are general uh, good principles of leadership. Um, so personally, I have a problem with asking for help. I like to do things on my own. So when uh, there's something that needs to be done at work, I like to be able to research it, figure it out, do it on my own. Um, I repeat this in the money. And so like, when I, instead of like, calling up a consultant who can help me do this, I'm like, okay, well, I'm just trying to figure this out. Tell them, I'm struggling with this right now at work um, because we're spending tons of money on people who I feel like it makes me feel bad. It makes me feel like I'm spending money when I should just know this and be able to do it myself. Um, but it's not good, right? Um, we, need, we just need help. Um, and so if you're the kind of person who needs help, you need to be able to ask. And um, the other part of that is, we'll get to it later, is teaching and listening. So we're going to uh, yeah, we're going to get to that later. So I've got my axe wrong there with the leadership teaching. Okay. Um, so the first part, focus on important tasks. That should have been the lead because that was on the previous slide. Um, teach them. This is the other thing that we got out of this. What is uh, Jethro's advice to Moses? It's to teach them. Um, so all the work was focusing on Moses' understanding. Um, and so it's a same point of failure, right? And that's what we're seeing um, where people are getting angry. And so the way around that is to spread the load. But in order to spread the load, you have to teach them. Um, you have to, you can't just like, oh, I'll just knock and do it, you know? You have to raise up other leaders who can help out. Honestly, that's why I'm standing here right now, right? So that Jeremy doesn't have to prepare a message and you know, speak on two things twice a week. Um, so what comes next in the story? And we hinted at this from the, the quote that I read from that, that uh, Bible professor. It's the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, and all of the, the wisdom that God starts to give to Moses. So here we've got, the, and I, don't, I kind of feel like the story should be backwards, right? Moses should get the Ten Commandments, and then Jethro should show up and say, okay, now you got these things down. Okay, go ahead, and here's how you, here's how you teach people how to, how to be appropriate judges. Um, but I think it's kind of just showing what the problem is, right? So Moses is ready. He's like, okay, I'm going to share this, but these people don't know. They don't know how to make, how to be judge the people about. And so God's Prepping. All right, here it is. We're going to give you a whole set of commands about how these people should live in community together. And how. So, um, who's a good teacher in your life? Um, it's like a powerful thing to have a good teacher in your life. Um, when I was reflecting on this question, um, the person I, I've had plenty of good teachers. I can think of old teachers who taught me just a lot about you know, certain subjects. My physics teacher in, in uh, high school was good. My Bible teacher in college was really good. Um, but like, the person who taught me a lot, and now I see teaching over and over again, and reflects a good teacher is my father. Um, my father has taught me like woodworking, um, electronics, you know, auto repair, stuff about engines, um, and he does it with patience and like a real care for this. Is I have something I want you to be better, and isn't it, it's great when you see a teacher who says what I have is valuable, and I want you to have it so that you are a more valuable person. And that's what my father does that with like this patience and love and uh, understanding. I just I can see that you know I reflect on that now when I see how he worked with my kids and my um, nieces and nephews. My, grandchild now. It's just amazing to see the power of a good teacher. So um, reflect on that. Re reflect on the wisdom of who's a teacher in your life, how you can be a good teacher. Um, one of the takeaways that I'm, I'm getting. Okay. What's next? 
uh, qualified leaders and followership. So uh, Jeffro's advice is to raise up people and we get a list of their qualifications. Um, and what's interesting is there, there's some references that are kind of parallels into some of the Ten Commandments. Um, the First Commandment, we have the fear God. So we read in, let's see, uh, this is in verse 21. Nope. But, uh, yeah, 21. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over uh, thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So uh, First Commandment, fear God. That was the qualification. Um, so we list these, these qualities that you need to look for as a leader and who you're going to teach and raise up. And that's important. My, I want to turn this on uh, its head a little bit and say, who are are you a good follower? Are you investing yourself, your energy, in how to be teachable? How to be a good follower? What does it mean to follow well? You, honestly, there's not, when there's a good leader, you, you can see how they can command thousands and, you know, um, of people. It's because that's, that's what God has gifted them to do, and people will naturally follow. What we, and we need people who have thought in their head, processed in their brain, who I am as a follower. How do I make myself the kind of person that says, oh yeah, I guess I, you, you, can, you should be raised up into, into leadership. Um, yeah, because oftentimes what we think about is, I want to lead. And so these are the qualifications that I should you know, have for leading. I need to, you know, be good at public speaking. I need to, you know, be charismatic. I need to be smart. Um, but really, we need some good followers. We need people who are able to execute and do things uh, in a godly manner, who understand the fear of God. Okay, so followership. I think that's one of the things that we don't um, talk about as much as we like. Um, they're trustworthy, hating dishonest gain. Again, those are like the first eight to nine commandments. Don't steal. Don't, add, uh, don't bear false testimony. Don't cut. Right? Those are three of the, of the things that we can uh, see get reflected in what God gives to Moses in the next chapter. Um, one thing I want to point out here is, as we're almost done here, is in verse 3, 23, I mean, if you do this in God's commands, you will be able to stand the strain, right? That's the point. We're talking about leadership here, and you can stand the strain, and then all these people will go home satisfied. Good leaders have satisfied followers, right? They're just giving goodness, bearing fruit in this world. Um, so uh, that's just something that we don't, don't have a lot of right now. Okay. We're, all, we're, we're done. We've gone through all this stuff. But what I wanted to do uh, is point out, there's some things in this chapter that we, there's just some unanswered questions. Uh, is Jeff Rowan the same person? I don't know. Uh, what does it mean that Jeffrey was a priest? Well, I don't know. He was a priest in Midian. He was a smart guy. But what kind of, you know, did he know God? Did he just come to know God? I don't know. I'm answered. Um, did Moses divorce his wife? I don't know. Did Jeffrey make a sacrifice to Moses? We didn't even talk about that. But that's in there. Like, okay, you see them eating. Um, it says that there was a sacrifice. Who, who was the person that sacrificed? They didn't have any sacrifice for a while yet because that didn't come until, you know, next uh, couple chapters. Um, was it godly or worldly advice that Moses should share the Lord as a judge? I argue that doesn't matter. Truth is truth. Um, good worldly advice is godly advice. So, and none of these questions uh, are unanswered questions. They affect the core truth of what's in the Bible and what we're learning about. So a lot of times, you know, people will read this and like, oh, this is awesome. Like, who is this? Well, it, it, I don't think it matters to the narrative arc of the story and what we can take away from this. So, um, yeah, then, when you read the Bible and you study it deeply, you're going to come away with some questions that are just not going to be answered. So get comfortable with that because that's the way it is. Um, all right. Well, we're done. Let me, uh, oh, we have communion? Yeah, I'll let you Yeah, I'll pay for a Well, Father, you, um, you're good. And I thank you that you've given us this uh, such a scripture that we can study, talk about tonight. Um, I pray, Lord, that we'd be able to meditate on it and change our lives uh, in a way that better reflects you and make uh, this world better. We thank you for your love for us and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Great Bay Calvary Church in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our services or need prayer for something going on in your life, come connect with us at greatbaycalvary.com.